Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. The first story of tonight's episode is by author Michael Whitehouse, entitled Second Hand. I've always been curious about the histories connected to belongings. I buy many of my things secondhand from charity shops, retro specialty stores, those sort of places. You can call me cheap all you want, but for me things have feelings. The vinyl record you listened to the night you were dumped, scratches and all. The shoes you wore as you staggered home drunkenly last birthday. That old guitar you never bothered to learn to play. 
All real, tangible objects, all with a story to tell, all with a unique view of the world. If something is new, it's like a baby, a clean slate with no experience of life. A brand new car, for example, has seen very little. A sterile factory, as it was brought into existence, a showroom with a gleaming floor and an insincere salesperson with an equally gleaming smile. It has no knowledge of the open road, of the horizon stretching out into the distance like a limitless promise or boundless threat. No, it's just a baby. Give me a car with a few thousand miles on the clock and wheels that have sucked up the dust of a summer's day, the frozen dirt of a winter's night, and spat it back out onto the road behind. That car has seen things, been a part of a journey, gotten to know its owner. The music she likes, the route she takes to work, that time she cried herself dry on the dashboard when she first heard the news. That car knows the world, at least part of it. It knows the people who've owned it, and it has embraced and assimilated all those raw feelings, tiny moments, and life-shattering times. All of them. When I wander into a rundown charity shop, I know that I'm surrounded by treasures. A book for fifty pence, Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine, once read by an elderly lady peeling each page back as she reminisced achingly about her youth. The book tells two stories, one contained in the inked words, and the other of a life and time through every creased spine and yellowed piece of paper. And yet some memories, some experiences, are perhaps best left to diminish like breath on a mirror. I say this because, while I always romanticized about the stories objects could tell of their previous owners... I never for a second thought that they could truly describe a nightmare, suffocating, violent, and real. On a bright spring day, I saw it, sticking out from a pile of old clothes at the back of a charity shop. I'd been there many times before as the place sat on a quiet street just a few minutes from my home. I always smiled when I passed it and looking through the sun-kissed window to the abandoned things inside, somehow I felt that they smiled back. An old sports jacket, dark gray with a slight hint of pinstripe, the buttons a mix of tan and black bleeding into each other like a wearied yin and yang. That's what I saw on that day. It peeked out from a torn black bin bag, which itself lay crushed by an unceremonious collection of musty jackets, ties, shirts, and shoes. It was clear that the lady in the shop, an amiable pensioner by the name of Sandra, hadn't had a chance to sort through the bags, and so there was no attached price for the jacket. Lifting it out, I instantly was taken with it. Normally, clothes were not my thing. I preferred objects, bashed game boards, books, and other curiosities, But there was something about that jacket. The inside was a dark, rich blue and felt like silk, although I was sure it wasn't. Instantly, I approached Sandra, who sat behind the counter, rustling through a packet of boiled sweets. She smiled warmly at me, being one of her most trusted regulars, as I enthusiastically asked about the price. For just a few pounds, the jacket was mine, and oddly... 
I left immediately to return home and try it on, leaving any other unseen treasures behind which might have caught my eye. Facing a full-length mirror which hung on my bedroom wall, another pleasing bargain from a charity shop, I stood there wearing the jacket. It felt comfortable, like an old friend, and it fit perfectly. Pleased with my find, I carefully placed it on a hanger inside my oak wardrobe, which sat at the end of my bed and went about my day. And yet, my thoughts returned continuously to my latest purchase, no matter where I was or what I was doing. I was almost giddy about it, the way a child is with a new toy. This was strange for me, as I wasn't particularly interested in clothes and could never understand the enthused pleasures some derived from them. I'd always been a scruffy-type jeans and a t-shirt were my thing. But there I was, after a short period of time, standing, yet again, in front of the mirror, modeling an old sports jacket and feeling unnaturally pleased with myself. It made me feel formal in some way, and my thoughts while wearing it were of an elderly gentleman in a large ballroom, whining and dining in the lap of luxury, and entertaining his companions with stories of adventures during a service. That night, I awoke to an unnerving experience. I sat up with a jolt as a loud sound tore me from a pleasant dream. Having fallen asleep while reading, my bedside lamp was still on, and the dull bulb cast an increasingly diminishing light across the room. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing palpable, just the silence of lifeless furniture resting in the night. But in the back of my mind, there was now absent noise still echoed, and with it the faintest hint of recollection. Try as I might, I was unable to place anything but the familiarity of it. I wandered around my home, flicking on the lights in the hall outside my room first, then cautiously to the others until the entire house was bathed in yellow but I could find nothing which suggested the cause of what woke me. The doors were locked and the windows all closed, and so, with confidence that the noise was merely the faceless product of a dream well forgotten, I returned to bed, and yet I still felt unnerved for some reason, keeping the bedside lamp on as I tried in vain to claw my way back to the warm comfort of sleep. The next day I went to work, on edge due to a restless night, but again I felt my thoughts returning to the jacket in my wardrobe. How smart I looked in it, how refined. I couldn't wait to try it back on. As soon as the office clock struck five, I rushed outside, with nothing but a mumbled word to my colleagues, and headed home as fast as I could. Fumbling with the keys in the lock, I made my way into my house, abruptly dropping my bag and coat on the floor, and rushed to the oak wardrobe in my bedroom. There it was, hanging there like an empty vessel, which had to be filled. I took the sleeve between my thumb and fingers, rubbing the dark gray material soothingly. With care, I removed it from its hanger, and stood in front of the mirror. I was aghast at the sight of me. All my adult life I'd been unkempt, my hair ruffled and messy, Wearing that beautiful jacket, it just didn't seem right. I felt ashamed of myself, of how I looked. Quickly, I went to the bathroom and soaked my hair, before running a comb through it forcefully. 
When I returned to the mirror, I looked more acceptable, my hair now shaped neatly into a side parting. Yes, I felt much more at ease, presentable even. A smile crept across my face as my mind explored the image of an elderly gentleman wearing the jacket, a man of industry, a man of experience. Yes, things do indeed tell tales. He'd seen terrible things, ordered his men resolutely. Shells and gunfire, man of duty. Yes, I imagined the stories that jacket could tell of an old officer dining with guests surrounding him. Did they know what the captain had really done as they sat there in their evening gowns and dinner suits? They could eat and laugh and drink and dance, but the captain, he could smile, yes. Yet inside the world was turning, poisoned by the cancerous artifacts of war. The captain had indeed seen things, but he had been more than a harmless spectator. In the throes of a dream, I was pulled involuntarily from a serene slumber. Familiarity then broke the silence, a sound I knew but could not place, this time louder than the night before. It had shuddered suddenly before a ceasing fire. Slowly I rose from my bed and wandered between the rooms of the house to investigate, frightened by the prospect of a burglar climbing through a window. The house sat in the bow of silence, its walls lifeless, and the shadows of night still and unerring. I knew the sound. I knew it. But like a reticent name on the tip of my tongue, the recollection refused to reveal itself. The following day I struggled to work, shattered by my questioning mind in the night. The noise perturbed me. It engulfed me. I was frustrated by knowing, yet not knowing. Just what was that sound? Two nights in a row I'd heard it, but no sign or clue of its origin. Through the irritation of sleep deprivation, forced to falsely smile at my colleagues and surround myself with meaningless paperwork, my only comfort through that long day was to think of the jacket, that warm blanket of memory which had taken me into its embrace. Of course, I knew that the captain was merely a character in my mind, the latest in a long line of stories I had created to add sentiment to the world. But I was as fond of him as I was of his belongings. By 5.30 p.m. I was home, and as I had done the day before, I dropped my bag and made my way to the oak wardrobe. Gazing into the mirror, I felt disappointed at what I saw. My hair was pristine, combed to perfection, but the now-off-white shirt I wore to work was cheap and grubby. In fact, it was the first time I had noticed how ordinary my work appearance really was. It wouldn't do. No. No, it wouldn't do at all. I managed to make it just before six o'clock. I breathed a sigh of relief that Sandra hadn't closed the shop. She smiled at me as I entered, but I barely noticed and instead headed straight towards my objective, to where I had found the jacket before. I started rummaging around the bags which still sat there, untouched, filled with the discarded belongings of unseen others. Smiling as I approached the counter, sweat pooling on my brow, I made my purchase and headed home. 
In amongst the bags, I had found an old burgundy shirt. I wasn't sure of the material, but it was beautiful, expertly crafted, and I knew immediately that it was a shirt worthy of the captain's jacket. Further still, I had found a waistcoat which seemed to complement both, and so there I stood, looking much more presentable. The captain would be pleased. Once more I awoke to darkness, a sound having wrenched me from my sleep, the same noise I had heard for the previous three nights. I shivered slightly, not at the temperature of the room, but at something inside me. A virus or bug, whatever it was, had produced a mild fever. My bed sheets were soaked in sweat, and I labored to catch a breath, feeling too weak to investigate the sound. I lay there in the grips of a strange and skewed apprehension. The room was black, but in the hints of objects, the outlines of walls and chair and wardrobe, I looked up to see the mirror. Not vacant, no, but filled with an indistinct reflection, like a shadow, the silent suggestion of something. The memory remains vague, but one thing has stayed with me to this day. Two eyes, white and wide, opened to meet mine from the mirror. An accusatory, angered stare which swept over me. A strange, icy coldness then took me to sleep, cries I did to resist. The following day I felt remarkably well, dismissing the reflection in the mirror as a fevered hallucination. Indeed, I seemed to have recovered from my ordeal to a great extent. I still had a temperature, however, and so called in to take the day off work. I must admit that the idea of having a day to myself was appealing, and so, after a shower and making sure I was presentable, I ironed the burgundy shirt, adorned a silk-like waistcoat, and proudly wore the jacket once more. And there I stood, facing the mirror, smiling and happy. It was only when my phone rang that I realized I'd been standing, rooted to the one spot, for most of the day, with little or no memory of the preceding hours, only vague, shapeless visions of light and dark shifting before me, accompanied by strange distant knocks and thuds. This would have been a concern to anyone in their right mind, but not to me. No, I was concerned with only one thing. I still didn't look right. I left my home, the ringing phone, and an open front door to make my way steadily, almost marching, to the charity shop. Inside, Sandra asked if I was feeling well, as she was worried I looked a little peaked. But I abruptly told her to mind her own business as I waded through the unsorted bags yet again. Feverishly, I pulled a pair of dark suit trousers from between two faded shirts, followed quickly by an old leather pair of shoes which had lost their shine many years before, and a leather belt with a similarly dulled buckle. I can't remember if I paid for them or not. All I can recall is staggering up the stairs outside my home into the mirror. Sickness had taken me. My stomach ached and turned as if fighting against the unseen waves of a turbulent sea below. Struggling on, my compulsion would not let go. And before long, I stared even deeper into my reflection. Perfectly ironed trousers, a gleaming belt and buckle... Leather shoes now shined and restored, a burgundy shirt expertly pressed, 
waistcoat, and, of course, the captain's jacket. Yes, I look presentable. It would do nicely. Ship-shape. Breathing deeply, I gazed and looked into the facsimile of myself, which smiled back from the mirror. The sickness faded with each inhalation, constraining the rhythm of my pulse. The seconds birthed minutes, and those minutes bled into hours. Moments, fragmentary slivers of consciousness, seeped through like a morning haze creeping between a closed blind. Voices came to me, mumbled, undefined, yet the tone was unmistakably one of anger. I saw flashes of light as I had before, and shapes of darkness moving nearby. My blurred vision continued to withhold the truth from me, the shapes trembling and shifting as if glimpsed through warped glass. A series of loud thuds, almost bangs, sounded, close yet distant. As the sun set outside, the angered voices combined, Voices of countless people coalesced into one mind, one aching chant. Visions came to me. Unbearable sun, a scorched earth, and finally something finite, something tangible. Soldiers. Flags unfurled by a breathless wind. Boots, marching. A crowd of frightened people in gunfire. Then there were bodies, countless bloodied victims strewn across a patch of dirt. The voice, now distilled, drew closer. Words forced their way between gritted teeth, ringing in my ears, still muffled as if spoken through an unseen viscous membrane. I felt weight then, a heaviness which burdened my hands, dirtied and stained. In them, I held a rifle. And as I looked up, I could see the light and dark which had shifted continuously before me. Patterns which I knew now to be the bleached sky, blocked by a tall, shadowy figure. His eyes pierced my thoughts as he shouted, yelled, angered, and filled with vengeance. Open fire! It was wrong. I knew it was wrong. Yet I raised the rifle up and pointed it at my target, people unarmed and afraid. The voice continued, carried high above the carnage, urging me on, commanding me to shoot. My finger began to squeeze the trigger as the man, that towering imperial figure, which I had affectionately referred to as the captain, moved closer, screaming in my ear, the heat from his breath close and palpable. I shivered. This was not me, not now, not then, not ever. My hesitancy drew condemnation from the shadowed outline of the captain. I did not want to disappoint him, and while I felt pangs of duty and patriotism, I could not bear the looks of those people, staring up at me as they faced their final moments. I threw the gun to the ground, and as I did so I found myself staring at the mirror, my hand raised in salute. To whom, or to what, I don't know. The fever now returned, an aching pain burrowing in my stomach. I wretched as my body tried to expel something from within, yet it was not forthcoming. Collapsing to the floor, I struggled to stay alert, panicking that I was in need of a doctor. I pulled at the captain's jacket, slipping it off my shoulders and throwing it on my bed, followed quickly by a waistcoat, shoes, shirts, and trousers. I lay on the floor for a time, shivering, 
convulsing as the sweat seeped through my skin to the floor, as if ridding me of some insipid infection. It was not until midnight that my strength returned. I pushed myself up from the floor and staggered to the bathroom where I sat in the shower, cleansing myself of the horrid remnants of my hallucination. The beads of water slowly restored me, and so finally I returned to my room, looking at the clothes, jacket and all, which now lay in a crumpled heap on the bed. It wouldn't do at all. Picking them up, I placed them carefully on a few hangers and hung them up inside the wardrobe. As I did so, a momentary sense of dread washed over me. How I wished I had listened to it. Deep down, I knew that I should have been done with those clothes, but the thought of discarding them filled me with disgust, a lack of respect. Those clothes deserved admiration. They demanded it. Exhausted from my earlier sickness, I staggered into bed. As my eyes gave in to the weight of tiredness, I experienced a moment of clarity. My thoughts cleared through the fog, and with the briefest flicker of insight, I questioned the illness and the profound visions I had experienced staring into that mirror. Whose voice had I heard? What violent act had I become privy to? My last impulse was an uneasy one. To escape my home and seek shelter far beyond the scope of a malevolent force which now hung in the air corpse-like and vengeful. The fog of an unseen influence then dulled my senses. I felt being lulled, persuaded, even bartered with, to give myself to a comforting dream of rolling green hills, quaint villages, and a peaceful life far removed from the horrors of war, a place where one could put the atrocities behind them and continued on with a normal life. The sound, that noise which had awoken me on each of the previous nights, it once more called me to consciousness. I tried to pull myself out of bed, but to my horror, the sickness had returned, potent, the nausea gripping my stomach. A cold sweat whispered across my skin to an almost unbearable crescendo. Yet the noise still rang in my ear. And in the clutches of sickness, its nature, its identity finally came to me. The realization shook me, sending panic coursing through my body. A simple sound, one I had heard each day, but in the blackness of that room it took on a new meaning. A threat covered by the night. The noise came from the wardrobe. Coat hangers clinking together like glass within. I lay there frozen, staring at the wardrobe, which now appeared to me like a tomb, a standing coffin which played host to something unseen, and which infested the world outside with a stark apprehension. Holding my breath involuntarily, I waited for a sign of movement. I imagined the door slowly creaking open and revealing what lay inside. My heart raced, pounding like an unbearable drum. And in my weakened state, fear truly took hold. I felt helpless, unable to mount a defense, should something unearthly climb out of the darkness. For a moment I thought I saw a shift in the wardrobe, something moving within causing its frame to shudder almost imperceptibly. I let out a gasp, and in that admittance of fear, 
that announcement of my weakened state, the truth presented itself, for there was indeed something there, something ominous and intrusive. Yet it was not inside the wardrobe. It was standing in the corner of the room, hidden by shadow, a figure, tall and dominant, staring at me under cloak of night, its eyes pinpoints of light, in an otherwise Stygian nightmare. Then there was a strange moment between us, a silence which provoked more fear in me than I have ever known. We stared at each other from across the room, and it felt to me as though the intruder was sizing me up, calculating the cost, a strategy for attack, evaluating how weakened I truly was. Suddenly it moved towards me, arms outstretched, and as it did so, I saw it in greater detail, briefly illuminated by a slither of light from a street lamp outside. The jacket which I had been so taken with, the waistcoat, the shirt, the trousers, the shined shoes, all there, presentable, respectable, and worn by the figure of a man indistinct and shifting, his features and hands nothing but blackened mist. The clothes moved with precision, and as I cried out in terror, the shadowed trespasser was upon me. The dark, coal-like fog which approximated a hand grabbed hold of my face, feeling more like worn skin than was suggested by its incorporeal appearance. I instinctively fell backwards, rolling out the other side of the bed, crashing to the ground. Despite my sickness, adrenaline urged me to flee towards my bedroom door, but the man was quick and grabbed me by the arm, throwing me into the mirror which shattered on the floor at my bare feet. The glass slid open my back as it fell, and the sharpened pain of countless cuts congealed with the tear. It was then that the figure wrapped its misted fingers around my shoulders, lifting me up before slamming me against the shards of glass on the floor. Countless incisions and slashes rippled across my body as each piece of glass, large and small, ripped open my skin, embedding deep in the muscle beneath. A silence fell across the room, broken only by the shifting weight of my attacker, crushing glass underfoot. It was then that I experienced physical pain which I cannot put into words. The fog-like figure, prim, proper, and presentable in the captain's clothes, placed its foot upon my chest and pressed down with merciless force. Each blade, sliver, and shard of glass pushed deeper through, then under my skin, thrusting further into my body, violently encouraged by pinchers of floor and unnatural foot. I could not yell. I could not cry. I could only let out an involuntary gasp of air, and as I did so, the figure finally spoke to me. On your feet, it ordered loud, pronounced, and with command, and in those words I knew that I was face to face with the captain. Leaning over me, his clouded hands reached out, encircling his fingers around my left arm. With ease, he pulled me up off the ground. On your fate, he screamed again, and then battered me against the glass and the floor once more. I wheezed and coughed as a searing pain ran up my side, the impact winding me. I felt a crack deep within as a rib gave in to the assault. 
I say, get on your feet, Private. The captain ordered, leaning over to grab me once more. Panic and pain mixed together, coursing through my veins. I knew I could not survive another attack. The fogged, darkened hands of the figure then bore down upon me, and in one last desperate plea for survival, I clawed at something close by. A loud tear cut through the night, followed by an almost inaudible gasp. I had inadvertently ripped the pocket of the captain's jacket. My assailant staggered backwards for a moment in response as if wounded. Quickly, I grabbed a blade of glass which lay on the floor, and with every ounce of life I had left in me, I pushed it onto my feet. Launching forward, I feverishly slashed and cut, not at the shadowed man who had attacked me, but at the clothes which were the captain's Achilles' heel. Smog-stained hands thrust up to stop me, but now, weakened, they could not prevent me from cutting through the jacket, waistcoat, and shirt. Blood oozed out of my hand as the blade of glass cut deeper into my skin with each attack, but I could not relent should the captain regain his footing. He fell to his knees as I tore, scratched, and sliced at the clothes, giving me the higher ground. Finally, exhausted, I sat on the bed. From there I watched the captain lying on the floor, his strength slowly diminishing. The clothes rose and fell with each spectral breath as the darkness and fogged appendages and head of what lay within faded away to nothing. I sat there in that silence, but it was not long before the pain of each fragment of glass stuck in my back returned as adrenaline gave way to utter shock. In the black of night I heard a word, distant, and whispered from some obscure history. Mutiny. And then I was alone. After spending several nights in hospital, recovering from loss of blood, two broken ribs, and a concussion, I finally ventured back to my home. Looking at the glass broken on the floor, my blood dried and congealed. I stared at the torn jacket and other clothes which lay before me. Like the scene of a brutal murder, they outlined the figure. Shoes, trousers, shirt, waistcoat, jacket all implying the shape of a man. I began to think that it was a damn shame, a waste. They deserved better. The captain deserved more than that. Yearnings began to build, and for a few minutes I explored the idea of having the clothes mended. Perhaps I should have done it myself. Needle, thread, and all. No, I came to my senses, and knew that whatever influence those belongings had... I could not yield to them. Quickly, I gathered them up, putting them in a black bin bag, much like those I had seen at the charity shop. An hour's drive later, and I was in the countryside. I got out of the car and hiked for a while across some fields and through some woods, finally coming to a clearing. I did not know entirely where I was going, but Blackwood Forest seemed as good as any a place to do what had to be done. There, I set a fire for I did not want the ashes of those things near my home. As the flames grew, I felt a deep urge to turn back and take the captain's clothes with me. But I persevered, I resisted, and threw the wretched things in the fire. First the shoes and trousers, then the shirt and waistcoat. 
but just before I committed the jacket to the flames, something caught my eye. From inside the lining, which had been torn apart by my attacks, something now protruded. A handwritten letter of commendation for services above and beyond the call of duty. The writing was worn and faded, and so I could not make out the rest. What I can say is that inside the envelope lay a medal which read, Captain Everett, Amritsar, 1919. I threw it all in the fire, and as I did so, I felt a deep sadness and sense of loss within me. As the flames consumed the jacket and other items, the crackle of each burning ember sounded remarkably like that of gunfire, distant, long ago, echoing out from the past or from beyond. Yes, things have more than feelings. They have memories. They soak up the thoughts and actions of people nearby. Heartache, laughter, joy, dread. I've never forgotten those days and my brush with the captain. Often my thoughts return to the metal, which I'm sure lies out there in the countryside, blackened with soot yet unharmed by the fire. I think of the words and the name engraved on the metal. The pull of its memory still haunts me, goads me even. I've never researched the name of Captain Everett, the medal or jacket, and while my dreams are often invaded by the sound of gunfire and embittered eyes bearing down on me, I know that I must never entertain the compulsion to go searching for answers. For those clothes came from a man of varied deeds, and his sins have left their mark on the world, and by association, an uneasy burden upon me. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The second story in tonight's episode is by author Creepy Carbs, entitled Edith's Memory. Every weekend, I drive out to visit Edith. Although not biological, she still mothered me like her own. She never wanted me to refer to her as a mother, and insisted me title her as grandmother, considering that she was 68 when she adopted 15-year-old me. Edith didn't adopt me because I craved a loving family. I didn't. She adopted me because she wanted to provide the opportunity for me to graduate high school, enroll in college, and make a success of myself. And for that, I love her. Currently, I'm 28 years old, working as a paralegal. Edith can't do much nowadays, except for aimlessly wander the house and backyard occasionally, although most of the time she stays in bed watching television. Tina and Olivia, her caretakers, have always been good to her, I had to hire the two because Edith refused to move to the city, even though I offered for her to live with me. I suppose the memories made here are what compelled her to stay. Memory. A word now cripples me with fear. Edith has Alzheimer's, and being 81 years old, it's no surprise that the disease developed. When I visit her, it's nearly impossible to talk about current events. Even though she watches television all day, she doesn't retain the information. But that doesn't mean that Edith is a boring old lady. Edith has remembered almost everything from her past. When I sit down on the recliner next to her bed, we will both watch the TV and talk about her memories. Today, she told me a story that will forever haunt me. We sat beside each other, watching a jewelry commercial, depicting a man proposing to his lover. That was a very sweet commercial, Edith mentioned in her cheery yet tired tone. The ad sparked an idea within me. Edith, I asked, turning towards her, what's the nicest thing someone has done for you? Looking over at me from her bedside, she smiled. Her pale features and striking blue eyes had always appeared strangely friendly to me. Are you sure you want to know? she questioned. Well, of course I do, I replied enthusiastically. Why wouldn't I? The smile faded from her face. When I was a young lady, she began, staring off into space as if recollecting her thoughts. I had crashed my car. I don't quite remember where I was headed to, or why I had crashed, but I do remember plowing it into a telephone pole. She started to giggle slightly. Luckily, the thing didn't fall over. Who knows what would have happened if it did? But it was dark out, and I didn't want to get out to look at the damage. I was, and still am, scared of the dark. She giggled again, looking over at me. But a very nice man, driving behind me, pulled over to where I had crashed to see if I was okay. I don't remember his name, but I do remember that he was quite the gentleman. Just like you, honey, 
she said, poking me in the ribs. Even though I'm a full-grown man, she still pampers me. Edith continued. After looking at the damage done, he figured he would drive me less than four miles back to his apartment, where I could use his telephone to call a tow truck. I suppose I'm thankful that he lived nearby. She then fell silent, spacing out once again. I broke the silence after about a minute. Well, that was nice of a stranger to do. She nodded. I did deliver a letter to his apartment to thank him for his kindness. Silence again. Now I was just getting confused. And, I urged her on, and a few days later I saw in the newspaper that he had gone missing. I will admit, by the time I left Edith's home, I was creeped out. At least now I knew why she asked me if I wanted to hear the story or not. It had a strangely sad ending. Yet the oddities don't end there. As I was driving home that night, a car sped past me, going at least twice the speed I was. But people speed all the time, and I thought nothing of it, until it crashed head-on into a telephone pole. Oh my God, I yelped, pulling over to the side. I had two thoughts going in my head at that point. Is this person okay? And damn, what a coincidence. I pulled out a flashlight from the glove box of my car, left my car, and ran over towards the crashed vehicle. It was a nice car, too, a 1954 Chevy Impala. What a shame. Are you all right? I flashed the light inside the window. Staring back at me was a woman. Her intense blue eyes complimented her fair skin tone. Back when I was younger, I recall Edith and I looking through her old family photographs. I've seen plenty of pictures of Edith in her 20s. This woman's resemblance was uncanny, and it chilled me to the bone. After inspecting the damaged Impala, I discovered that its front axle had been bent in the collision, rendering the vehicle now impossible to drive. I turned to face the strange woman who kept thanking me for stopping to help. I, well, do you have a cell phone you can use to call someone? I hesitantly asked. She wore a full skirt and an old leather bomber jacket. Cell phone? She echoed, looking confused. I don't have one of those, unfortunately. I wasn't surprised, considering she looked like she literally came out of the 1950s. Actually, I almost expected her to not have a cell phone. Since I also don't have one, my options were to either leave her stranded on the side of the road, or I offer her a ride. Well, miss, I suppose I can offer you a ride home, I asked nervously, began to sweat. She smiled. Let's see this smile. If it isn't too much trouble, she responded. Oh, of course not. I live right around the corner, I started, realizing that I lived approximately four miles away. My hands trembled on the steering wheel the entire drive back to my apartment, where I allowed her to use my phone to call a cab and a tow truck. My legs fell wobbly as I walked her to the cab. Thank you for all your help. Is there anything I can do to repay? Nope. I loudly cut her off. Nothing at all. My pleasure. She laughed. 
Well, sir, you've been a gentleman. I, I'll most likely see you around again. As she drove off, I couldn't help but think about just how right she was. I couldn't sleep. I wanted to call Edith right then and there to ask her about this occurrence, but it was eleven at night and I'll have to wait until tomorrow. Eventually, I'd passed out, but I was abruptly awoken by my doorbell. Still dressed in the clothes from yesterday, I sprang up and out of bed. Please don't, don't be who I think it is. Please don't be her. I murmured, my face feeling flushed of all color. I stared out the door's peephole. No one was on the other side. A sigh of relief passed over me. I came to the conclusion I had imagined the doorbell's ring. Heading down toward the lobby was dreadful. Edith's words hung over me like a fog. I did deliver a letter to his apartment to thank him for his kindness. I wanted to cry. I've never felt as shaken in my entire life. Approaching the mailbox, I fumbled with my key. Inside was nothing but bills. My eyes widened in disbelief. No letter. No letter. I started to laugh. Did I just dream this entire thing? I joked with myself. I froze upon entering my apartment. On my way in, I stepped on something slightly padded. My doorbell rang for a reason this morning. The letter was delivered, slid underneath the door. Edith's words buzzed in my head. I saw in the newspaper that he had gone missing. The letter was beneath my foot. I didn't move. I whimpered, then cried at the thought of what may happen to me next. I stood there hyperventilating, trying my best not to look down at the envelope. But I eventually had to. I had to look down. I had to pick it up. My hands trembled as I turned it over in my hands. Nothing was written on the front nor the back. Dare I open it? I gently placed the envelope on my coffee table. Sitting down on the sofa, I began to debate on what I should do now. I saw in the newspaper that he had gone missing. Something horrible might happen to me if I open it. Yet then again, something horrible might happen to me if I don't open it. I concluded that no matter what I do with the envelope, a dire fate was in store for me. If that strange woman was really Edith, then I may just inevitably disappear. It's how the story went. Therefore, it must be destined to happen. Going back to visit Edith and question her about this envelope was my best idea. At least that way I'll get some answers. I picked up the envelope by a corner and tore it open. I couldn't help but shut my eyes as I did so. Inside was a no letter as I figured there would be. Instead, there was a map. Well, a piece of a map. I say piece because it appears as if someone had torn a small section out of a complete map. The map fragment was just about the size of my palm. Labeled on it was a city titled Bilton. That city, it's less than six hours away, I blurted out. I know this place. At that moment, I grabbed my keys and rushed to the car. Upon arriving at Edith's home, I noticed Tina and Olivia in the front of the house. 
Tina readying to go home, Olivia just arriving. They smiled and waved at me as I approached. What are you doing here? Tina exclaimed, checking her wristwatch. Aren't you supposed to be somewhere, Mr. Workaholic? I pretended to laugh. <laughs> Took the day off to visit Grandma. How's she doing? I retorted. Tina raised her hands up to her temples, rubbing them as if she had a headache. Well, she's in one of those moods again, she muttered. Oh, sheesh, Olivia responded. Edith has never married. She only had one love in her life. When he left her, she never found another. So every now and then she remembers him, causing her attitude to shift from sweet to bitter. Well, I'll see if I can cheer her up, I mentioned upon entering the house. Walking up the stairs, I noticed Edith's door was wide open. She sat on the edge of her bed, looking out the window. Beside her were several tiny wooden boxes used to keep trinkets and notes. Even though the door was open, I knocked on it and stood in the doorway. As she turned around, I watched her angry mood lift back up to happiness. A huge smile crossed her face, and she raised her arms as high as they could go. That was a signal to go and hug her. "'What are you doing here? Don't you have to work today?' she said while I hugged her. "'Took the day off today,' I said again. "'So I came to visit.' Just as I thought her smile couldn't get any wider, it did." I helped Edith down the staircase and walked her over to the kitchen where I helped her make tea. Olivia joined us and we talked about nonsense for half an hour. When Olivia left the room, I decided to make my move. Edith, do you remember anything about the city of Bilton? She lowered her teacup, pale blue eyes, looking back at me quizzically. Why? she asked. While well, we were talking about Bilton earlier with Olivia and you said you had something to say about it. I lied. I felt terrible lying to her, but it was my best chance of getting her to fess up. I knew that Edith wouldn't have remembered a single thing about what we spoke of thirty minutes ago, so I can literally pretend we had a conversation that never existed. She looked down at her teacup and nodded as if she knew exactly what I was speaking of. Belton, she began, is where I met with a man who helped me on the day I crashed my car. We met at the corner of 22nd Street. I blanked, confused as hell now. But Edith, I thought you said he went missing. You told me you saw it in the newspaper. Edith raised her head to look at me, her expression, stone cold. I did see in the newspaper that he had gone missing, she whispered. But he was only missing to everyone except me. The rest of the day was quiet with Edith. I didn't urge her to speak more on the subject, although I wish I had. I could tell her mood had drastically worsened. After returning Edith to her bed, she instantly fell asleep. Looking at the map one more time, I searched for 22nd Street. There it was, smack dab in the middle of a map piece. Taking a red pen from Edith's bedside, I circled the street name and placed the map in my pocket. I started to move Edith's trinket boxes from her bed to her nightstand, hoping not to wake the old woman. But as I stacked the boxes in my arms, I couldn't help but drop one. The lid fell open and something fluttered out of its compartment. 
As I stooped down to retrieve its contents, I couldn't help but notice a sinking feeling in my chest. In its little box held a paper, a map piece to be exact, encircled in red pen towards the middle was 22nd Street. I have to go. I need to go. There's no point in not going. But what happens if I stay? These thoughts raced throughout my mind. I stood in Edith's bedroom, studying both map pieces. They were absolutely identical in every aspect. The circle that I drew just minutes ago is the same circle on this map found in Edith's box. I shoved both into my pocket, closed my eyes, and took one deep breath. On my way out, I checked the time. Roughly 3 p.m. That's plenty of time. I'll arrive in Bilton in sometime around 9 p.m. I hurried to my car. The drive was nerve-wracking. What am I to expect when I get to 22nd Street? Will Edith's doppelganger be there waiting, or will something else? I had to be brave, even though I hadn't the slightest clue what may be in store for me. There seemed to be a sliver of hope within me. I can prevent this. I know I can. I can do this. I parked my car at around 8 p.m. I guess adrenaline caused me to drive faster than normal. No matter, I'm here now. As I got out onto the sidewalk, I pulled up the maps. This was it. The corner of 22nd Street. Standing in front of me was the city library. No one else was around. I made my way towards the doors. Why would she leave me here? I thought aloud. This place closed three hours ago. I tried the door anyways. They were locked, as I assumed. Peering inside was impossible. The lights were off. I could barely make out the bookcases. Then I noticed a transparent figure. Edith. I could see her standing, but not inside the library. What I was looking at was a reflection. I spun around, startled by her sudden appearance. Ah! <laughs> Yelp, she giggled. I'm sorry, did I frighten you? She laughed, placing a hand on my shoulder. I know the gesture was meant to reassure me, but all it did was make me cringe. Y y yeah, but that's okay. I squeaked. She was still smiling. I was about to leave, she told me. I figured you weren't going to show up. I handed her the map, trying to remain as calm as possible. Well, your letter wasn't exactly the most informative, I replied. She didn't even look at my outstretched hands. Her eyes were fixed on mine. I, um, didn't get your name, I mentioned, averting my gaze. Her hand never left my shoulder. My name is Edith. I don't think I received your name either. I felt my face redden. A bead of sweat rolled down my forehead. M my name, it's a... I can't tell her. Don't tell her. Listen, I announced. May I ask why you had me come here? She laughed again, never taking her eyes off mine. Well, she said running her hand from my shoulder to my damp, clammy hand. I couldn't stop thinking about you after we met the other day. I feel that we have a connection. Her hand was like ice. My mouth was dry. I don't think this is a 
good idea. I... I'm married, I lied. Even though her smile faded, her pale blue eyes still lay fixated on me. I gotta get out of here, quick. I'll be going now, I croaked. I tried to pull my hand away, but her grip tightened. No, you won't, she snapped. Her lips tight and eyes narrowed. Let me go, I, I can't. I demanded, but was interrupted by a sharp pain in my sternum. Looking down, I saw her clenched fist grasping the hypodermic needle buried within my chest. I felt a warm sensation overtake me. Pushing Edith aside, I tried running down the steps towards my car. Instead, I tumbled down the staircase. The last thing I saw before passing out was Edith's hand covering my eyes. I awoke in a dark room. I could feel a bed beneath me. It was wet. I tried to scream, but soon realized that something filled my mouth. Reaching up, I found both hands bound together. I began to pull the grimy rag out of my mouth, but my gag reflex caused me to spew vomit onto my lap. I wiped the tears from my face and spat out the remaining bile. Looking around the room, I could see the door. Light was seeping through its frame. Standing, I tried stepping towards it. My first step sent me toppling to the ground. Something was around my legs, my pants. No, no, no. I felt my mouth salivate, and the next thing I knew, I threw up again. My eyes burned as light flooded the room. The door opened. I looked up from my fetal position through blurry, wet eyes. It was Edith. She held a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. She giggled. You look so vulnerable, darling. She snorted. Don't worry, though. You'll be put out of your misery soon. I began to cry. I wanted to scream, but no sounds came out of my open, drooling mouth. She walked towards me and cut the rope around my wrists. As soon as my hands were freed, I frantically hiked up my pants and jumped to my feet. She held the gun, pointing it towards my face. Wife or no wife, you're staying with me. You don't need anyone else, she scolded. The door was still open, but I dared not look at it. So I wiped the vomit and tears from my face and stared back at her. She was smiling. Run, out the door, down the stairs, go! She still stood there, as if almost expecting me to make a mad dash. Tears still streamed down my face. Go! I rushed towards Edith, shoved her to the ground, and leaped over her out the door. I was in the hallway. Which way is the staircase? I need to get down. I chose the left path and ran, but my movement of faith was cut short. There was a staircase, all right. It led up. I looked behind me to notice Edith calmly walking towards me, gun out in front. I had no other option but to ascend the stairs. My body felt strained and tired as I took the steps two at a time. This newer hallway wrapped around to the right. I kept running as fast as my lethargic, drug-laden body could take me. The hallway ended at a window. I could hear Edith's gentle steps behind me. I contemplated hiding in one of the adjacent rooms. What, what real use was that? She'd eventually find me. I took one deep breath and held it as I charged the window. 
The thin glass shattered as I tumbled two stories down to the pavement. The last sound I heard was the cracking of my skull. Almost immediately after I fell, I woke back up. This time, in a brightly lit hospital room. What? Where am I? I looked around the room to see a nurse. Her gaze met mine, and a wave of surprise crossed her face. You're awake, she whispered. He's awake. A doctor next to her turned to face me. Oh, he sure is, he quietly exclaimed. The nurse came to sit next to me while the doctor went out to call associates to monitor my awakening. I looked up at the nurse and tried to speak, but my throat held a respirator. The nurse took my hand and stroked it. Looking down at it, I nearly jumped out of my hospital bed. My hand looked like that of an 80-year-old man. I tore my hand away from the nurse's and touched my face. It felt leathery and wrinkled. I examined my arms. They were scrawny and mottled with liver spots. The nurse tried to place my hands back down in my lap, crooning at me. Calm down. Calm down. What is happening? I grabbed the respirator's tube and yanked it out. At first I felt lightheaded, but mustered enough strength to roll off the bed and onto my feet. Nurses and attendants surrounded me. Looking into the window, I could see my reflection. I was an old man. My heart raced. Cords and wires were still attached to me at my wrists and stomach, but I pulled free. People gathered around me trying to suppress my sudden outburst. I screamed, but all that emerged from my throat was a tired moan. Edith, I groaned. Where's Edith? No one answered my cry. Edith, I blurted. The nurse next to me answered. Edith? Edith is long dead. I felt my heart rate begin to decrease. A wave of tiredness overcame me. Edith is dead? I replied, giving in to their pleas to sit. The nurse laid me back down onto the hospital bed while attendants hurried to replace the wires and tubes I yanked off. The nurse held up a file. Edith, your adopted mother, had passed away when you were only 28 years old. I felt a wave of relief pass over my aching body. The nurse continued to talk to me, but the only words I could make out before I passed out were coma, delusional disorder, and dreaming. I awoke once again on a crowded city street. It was a bright day. I looked down at my hands. They were smaller, smoother, not wrinkled. They were younger. I wore blue jeans, a windbreaker, and sneakers on my feet. I remember these clothes. I had these when I was 15 years old. I was in the middle of a crosswalk several feet in front of me where a man and woman, and they looked back at me. I remember those people. I remember those people. Mom! Dad! I yelled. A happiness filled my soul. My parents! Alive! They're here with me! A lump in my throat formed as I tried to hold back tears. Mommy! Daddy! My legs felt wobbly and weak. I cried, but they were tears of absolute joy. 
You're here. You're here with me. My parents looked at each other, confused as hell, as to why their son was breaking down emotionally. I love you, Mom and Dad. I tried to run over to them. I love... The semi-truck's horn blared as it plowed through the crosswalk, crushing Mom and Dad beneath its sixteen wheels. I dropped dead in my tracks. People from sidewalks and cars rushed toward my parents' obliterated bodies. Please, no. Don't. Please, not again. I fell to my knees. My tears of happiness reverted to intense hysteria. I wailed. I screamed. I mourned. Honey. A voice emerged from the other room. It had been a couple of months since I arrived at St. Josephine's Orphanage. My life was nothing to me anymore. A nun opened the door a crack. Someone is here to see you. I sat on the edge of my bed and looked up at the new woman who entered the room. She was a fair-skinned woman with intense blue eyes. This is Edith, the nun continued. Edith smiled. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. 
That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.